Very cool. Good morning, everyone. So great to see you and be with you today. Again, one little note here before we get into our time in uh, in God's Word, just to give you an update on uh, an offering request we made a couple of weeks ago. You may know that we did a special ask to to meet a need over at Live Oak Elementary School, and so we went over, uh, went over our amount and met our goal and went over. And I went and told the principal and the council that yesterday they had asked for a special offering, actually just for us to be able to do what's called a backpack food program for students there who couldn't afford to eat over the weekend. And so uh, beginning. I believe next week we'll be getting a list of names from them, and every week we'll be taking food to the school for these children to have over the weekend. So thank you. Uh, when I told, again, the, the principal and the counselor found out, they were just thrilled. They told me to tell you thank you. Uh, so just one more way that we're meeting a need in our community. Very good. So let's, uh, let's uh, begin here. We are in the book of Exodus, and our scripture reading this morning is moving into Exodus 19, 20, and 24, sort of a combo passage for you. On the first day of the third month after the Israelites left Egypt, on that very day they came to the desert of Sinai. After they set out from Rephidim, they entered the desert of Sinai, and Israel camped there in the desert in front of the mountain. Then Moses went up to God, and the Lord called to him from the mountain and said, This is what you are to say to the descendants of Jacob, and what you are to tell the people of Israel. You yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt, and how I carried you on eagles' wings, and brought you to myself. Now, if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all nations you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words you are to speak to the Israelites. So Moses went back and summoned the elders of the people and set before them all the words the Lord had commanded him to speak. The people all responded together, we will do everything the Lord has said. So Moses brought their answer back to the Lord. And the Lord said to Moses, go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow. Have them wash their clothes and be ready by the third day. Because on that day the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people. Put limits for the people around the mountain and tell them, be careful that you do not approach the mountain or touch the foot of it. And God spoke all these words. I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of Egypt, out of a land of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. Chapter 24. When Moses went and told the people all the Lord's words and laws, (coughs) they responded with one voice, everything the Lord has said we will do. Moses then wrote down everything the Lord had said. He got up early the next morning and built an altar at the foot of the mountain and set up 12 stone pillars representing the 12 tribes of Israel. Then he sent young Israelite men. They offered burnt offerings and sacrificed young bulls as fellowship offerings to the Lord. Moses took half of the blood and put it in bowls. The other half he splashed against the altar. Then he took the book of the covenant and read it to the people. They responded, we will do everything the Lord has said. We will obey. Moses then took the blood, sprinkled it on the people, and said, This is the blood of the covenant the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. Moses and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, and the 70 elders of Israel went up and saw the God of Israel. Under his feet was something like a pavement made of lapis lazuli, as as bright blue as the sky. But God did not raise his hand against these leaders of the Israelites. They saw God, and they ate and drank. It's God's word this morning. Now, we've been moving through the book of Exodus and asking, attempting to answer the central question in the book, and that's the question, who is the Lord? Who is God? And the answer this passage gives us is this, he is the lawgiver. He is the lawgiver. Now, right away when you hear that, uh, most people have one of two sort of equally unhelpful reactions. The first reaction to this passage, to the giving of the law, to the description of God as a lawgiver is this, and people think, man, go get him, Morgan. You know, preach that law. 
People need to hear right from wrong. People need to know it's a good thing I do. Right? That's what separates the good people from the bad people. God, you know, he loves and saves the good people and he gets the bad people. The other reaction to this passage, the other reaction to the idea of God as a lawgiver is something like this. Oh man, this stuff is why I swore I would never go back. And the only reason I'm here today is because someone tricked me into coming. You know, Morgan, shouldn't we in the modern age finally be passed? All this rule stuff, all the commandment stuff, all the law stuff. Uh, this stuff only hurts people. I thought faith systems in Christianity was about love. Love. Why are we talking about this? But... I hope to show you this morning that both those reactions are equally shallow and actually unhelpful because that's not what this passage or what the law of God is really all about. So let's ask, what is the law of God really all about? What is the law of God for? And before I give you an answer, let me just say this. Out of all the amazing passages that we've been through so far, and of the, the, the rescue of the Israelites, of slavery, the call of Moses, more than the signs and the plagues of Egypt, more than all of those. This passage this week has thrilled my heart, touched my heart more than the rest, and caused me to more, to fall in love with God more than even all, all those other dramatic accounts. You say, man, well, how can that be? Gosh, you just read that, you know. No, because this passage is all about the heart. And it's all about the heart in three ways this morning. The law of God shows us how to, first, ravish God's heart, to serve another's heart, and finally, understand your own heart. Let's begin here, number one, and uh, let's see what it means for the law to, to help us ravish God's heart. Now, to understand how in the world that could be, how the law could actually help us ravish the heart of God, first, we have to see what the law is not, what it's not. So here in Exodus, the people have moved out where? Where are they? They're in the the desert, yeah. Moses goes up to meet with God on Mount Sinai so God can speak to him. This is what God says. He says, this is what you are to say to the people of Jacob, what you are to tell Israel. You yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt, how I carried you on eagle's wings and brought you to myself. So again, where are the people? They're in the desert, yeah. Where are they not? No longer where? In Egypt, yeah. Are they slaves or are they free? They're free, yeah. Have they obeyed God's law, though? No. How could they obey God's law? They haven't even received it yet. So they're saved, can you see? But they've obeyed nothing. And on top of that, at every point in their journey so far, all they've done, as we saw last week, is grumble and complain along the way. And yet, what word does God speak to them here in chapter 19 before any law is given? God says this, I carried you on eagle's wings. It's a way of saying, I picked you up. I rescued you. When you could do nothing for yourself, when you were powerless, it's saying, I have cared for you in ways beyond your comprehension, and I have quite literally saved your life. And why does God say that he did this? He says, so this, he said, so I could bring you to me. It's beautiful. Now, this isn't just a language, can you see, of a God speaking to his people. This is the language of a bridegroom speaking to his bride. This is wedding day language. Let me put this in modern vernacular for you. This is God saying, or bridegroom saying, I have spared no expense, my dear. You, my darling, you were in slavery to another man. He beat you, abused you, but I risked it all. I broke the power over you, uh, of your captor. I carried you out on my back. I saved your life, not just for justice, but for love but for love. I have done all this to bring you to me, to show the world there's none like you, and I want you to be mine 
forever. Now, has the woman, here in our little example, done anything for the man? Hmm. Has the man, though, saved her? Yes. Now stop wondering if that sounds sexist or not. It's not. It's just rhetorical. Okay. All right. Have the Israelites done anything for God? No. But has God saved them? Yes. Therefore, the purpose of the law cannot be to get and secure God's love. Can you see? The purpose of the law cannot be to get God to love you or to save you. You say, well, Morgan, aren't these, well, like, you know, commandments? Commandments? Well, yes, they are. Then you ask, well, Morgan, if they're commandments, and if the point of a law, though, isn't to get God to save me or to love me, why should I even care about them? If I'm not saved by them, why should I even obey God? And the fact that your heart and mind inevitably asks that question just goes to show how much we do not understand God's heart at a fundamental level. Because this is so counterintuitive for us. We always lean towards this thought. I'm good, therefore I'm loved. Or, I'll only be loved once I'm good or good at something. Let me just just sort of prove this to you. How many of you guys have had children and and at some level have tried to get them to memorize the Ten Commandments? Like I have. Yeah. You kids, Ten Commandments, yeah, it's it's always common. How many of you maybe were raised or taught to memorize them? Memorize them, yeah. I was also. But do you know what verse I was never taught? What verse I bet you were never taught either? It was the, it's actually the first words of the Ten Commandments. Not the first commandment, but the first words of the Ten Commandments, which goes like this. We read it. I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of Egypt, out of a land of slavery. You ask any kid, any person, how did the Ten, ten Commandments begin? They're probably not going to begin here. Why? Well, it's, I mean, why haven't we gravitated toward this? Why haven't we taught our children this? Is why? Because our hearts immediately go towards the law, towards the rules, what we're supposed to do. Why? Because our hearts operate on this principle. I got to know what to do so I'll be loved. We can't see why God gives them to us in the first place. And why is this? Well, I'll begin like this. My wife is amazing. She's amazing. She is. She's a, hundred, a thousand talents. Beautiful, loved me deeply. She's rescued parts of my heart that I didn't even know needed rescuing. She's been patient with me, loved me truly, loved me deeply when I had done nothing to deserve it, and especially when I deserved rejection. She's loved me first, and I owe her everything. Now, when you love someone, and someone's loved you like that, what should, what ought your response to be? Hmm? What response is both right and effortless? I'll tell you what it is. You want to know how you can love that person back. You want to know how you can love that person back. You want to place your happiness inside that person's happiness. And at a deep level, you realize that true love and real love always goes two ways. Carrie and I wouldn't have a love relationship if I didn't reciprocate, right? If I didn't find a way to hear her heart and love her back. And here in the Ten Commandments, you have God saying, I have heard your heart's deepest cry as a person, to be rescued and to be loved and to be made secure in my heart apart from your performance, apart from anything you've ever done. Now, this is how you love me back. This is how you reciprocate. And thankfully, because God gives us the Ten Commandments, God's not like most women whose minds are inscrutable, unknowable, perhaps will never make it clear how just what they want. Nor is he like many men who insist that, you know, I'm sort of low maintenance and direct and to the point, but your, heart, your wife actually knows better, Right. You say, but Morgan, you know, when my wife makes her heart known, those things aren't commands. 
Well, really, just try doing them. Find out how that works for you. Let me know how that goes. Listen, no. God is, can you see, as a lover who's ravished the heart of his people, as a king who's emptied his coffers for a maiden, is now making the inside of his heart known to his people. Look at the first commandment. He says this, what? You shall have no other gods before me. Now you say, well, that kind of sounds restrictive. Well, no, no. It's no more restrictive than any other love relationship. I mean, what kind of love relationship do you know is real? Hmm? You know is genuine. I'm not talking about some modern, you know, movie nonsense where some insecure guy has got to beat women to get over his own demons and all that kind of stuff. Listen, I'm talking about two people above all odds who have found each other, come together. And when you see that on the screen or in your life, what do you want them to do? And what do you do? You want to pledge mutual fidelity forever. Pledge mutual fidelity forever. True love is inherently restrictive, but 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 it's far more fulfilling in the long run than playing the field forever. And God is saying here, the whole earth is mine, the whole field is mine. But I'm not going to play the field any longer. I'm coming for you. I have heard your heart's deepest cry. Now hear mine. I've had no other people before you, Israel. Now have no other gods before me. And look what God says. It's beautiful. He says, if you'll do this, my people, if you'll reciprocate, if you'll respond to my love out of looking at what I've already done for you, look at what God says. He's gonna, they'll be for him, what he'll turn them into. He says, now if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, out of all nations you'll be what? My treasured possession. I mean, what's he doing here? He's giving them a pet name. A pet name. Darling, my dearest, my lover my special one, my treasured possession. The word for treasure is actually an unusual word. It's used to describe a jewel that's been locked away, shut away, put in a private collection like someone would take out and look at and admire in secret. What's this mean? It means that when we obey God's law, when we keep his commandments, it causes him to love us even that much more. It can't mean that it'll cause him to love us in the first place. He's already proven that. No, it just means that keeping God's commands are the way to ravish his heart, to thrill his heart that much more. Did you know that you can today thrill the heart of God, ravish his heart, show him that you love him, Imagine if every day then you got up and you read the Ten Commandments and you looked at them like that. Oh God, thank you. You've shown me a way I can ravish your heart even more. Thrill your heart even more. Listen, if you'll see that when you were a slave to sin, he's carried you out on eagle's wings, brought you out of the land of slavery. You go to the law and read them like that. That'll make you weep. Oh, that'll open your heart to the one who's opened his heart to you. So do that. Use the law like that. Go into the heart of God. Amen? That's not the only reason God's given us his law. Not the only reason that he's given it to us, excuse me, is to ravish his heart. It's also, secondly, the way he shows us to serve one another's heart. Serve one another's heart. Let's move on. Look at what Exodus 19 goes on to tell us what our obedience to God actually, in in the long run, makes us. He says, although the whole earth is mine, verse 5, you will be for me, two things, he says, a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. So what, you see what he's telling him here, of course, is that the law is not, the on, not only the way to ravish his heart, but it's also the way to another's heart. God says, if you'll keep my laws, 
It will make you into a radically new kind of human community. A new kind of human community. A totally different kind of people. A holy nation that means set apart. It'll make you into the kind of people that the world will look into. And because they see how you treat one another, they'll know that I'm God. And here's how you know that he means this. A little background. Look at where they are, right? They're in the desert, but where? In the desert, where are they camped around? You may remember, God has brought them to where? A mountain, right? A mountain. And right away, because he did this, they would have thought they knew exactly what was going on. But at the same time, as the scene unfolds, they would have been utterly stunned. You say, how and why? Well, ancient cities, especially important cities, were always built uh, around mountains. And on top of the mountain was always built a shrine or a temple or what was most often called a ziggurat. If you know the story of a tower of Babel in Genesis 11, they were building a ziggurat. If you know the story of Jacob and his dream, he saw uh, a ziggurat, something with steps like a, like a staircase going up to heaven. These cities were actually called shrine cities. And on top was a ziggurat, which had dozens, sometimes hundreds of steps. Why? Because ancient cultures believed that to get closer to your God, you would go up a mountain. And then on top of that, you would go up a temple where you would offer a sacrifice and therefore be accepted by your God. And so, on one hand, the Israelites would have thought they, were, they had known what was going on. They would have seen the mountain, right? Heard the thunder, seen the lightning, and understood, ah, oh, yes, this is the place where we go up to meet our God. Why? Because the foundations of religion and therefore of every culture is this thought. To be accepted, I must go up. I must perform, right? I must ascend. I must ascend. And the Israelites would have thought, okay, this is where we go up. But look at what God says to them right away. He says, be careful that you do not approach the mountain or touch the foot of it. I mean, what does this mean? This would have blown their minds. What do you mean we can't touch the mountain, God? Hmm? What do you mean we don't go up? What kind of a God is this? And the answer is this. This is not a God who makes you come up to him. This is a God who comes down to you. Can you see the difference? The people don't go up. No, God comes down, and not just to the mountain. If you keep reading later on, you see, he doesn't just stay on top of the mountain. No, he comes all the way down in the middle of the camp. His presence lives, literally, in their midst. Can you see what's happening? God is here. He is re-engineering the organizing principle of human community. A community not built on the principle of, I'm going to go up, separate myself from the pack, but on a God who comes down in the middle of the pack. And in that light, therefore, you can see why he gives them a law. Not so they can separate themselves morally, right? But so they can tend to one another and serve one another's heart. He's showing them how to dwell with one another and care for one another. Listen, these commands were radical at the time, and they're still radical today. You say, no, they're not. This is because you're familiar with them. Let's just do three quick case studies in the law to show you why this is true and how different the commands are, were then and how different they are today. And if we'll live like this, how it will make us. I'm just going to appeal to you. It will make us into the kind of church and into the kind of community, into the kind of city and nation that we all want to be a part of. So let's do three quick case studies on three big ones today from the, the, from the law. And here's a hint about these. Nothing's fundamentally changed in like 3,500 years because these were the three big ones in their culture as well. And they are the areas of sex, money, and power. And by the way, as we go through these just quickly, you're going to see just how, at the same time, both non-conservative and non-liberal this God is. First, sex. When God says, you shall not commit adultery, right? 
I think it's the sixth command, right? This was the first time that male adultery had been made into a crime. In other words, adultery is wrong for both parties. This is the first time in human history that women were elevated to this kind of status. This elevated women in a, in a culture like no one had ever dreamed in some ways today. Uh, women can only dream of this still today, unfortunately. This is also God's way of saying adultery isn't just wrong. It's degrading. It's degrading. Adultery breaks apart, hear this, not just individuals' lives, but a community. But a community, it doesn't matter if it's just consenting adults, right? Adultery releases destructive forces into the world. Why? Because the law isn't just for individuals. We always read it through an individual lens. But the law wasn't given to one individual, was it? No, it was given to a people, to a community to live this way. Adultery, in any case, is wrong. An implication of which is that sexual intimacy is always reserved for the context of marriage. That's number one. Number two, money. Money. You guys are real quiet. Okay, you're liking this. Number two, if you read into the Pentateuch, you see that not only were the people required to give 10% uh, of their income every year to share with the poor, with the Levites, with the priests, but every third year, there was an offering for the poor mandated by God. And when you added up what he commanded and you prorated it, the average Israelite gave around 23% of their income away every year, 13% or more of which went directly to feeding and caring for the poor among them. Now, if that sounds like too much to be giving away, it shows you don't grasp the depth of what God is trying to do through his law, how he's trying to weave a community together. He's not just showing them how to have a relationship with him, right? In a sense, they've already got that. He's showing them how to live together. He's trying to show them what it takes to form a holy nation, right? A new community. And he goes on to say, if you'll do this, and of course I didn't do this, but he says, if you'll do this, there'll be no poor among you. Listen, is this socialism? No. It's a heart that gives out of already being rescued. Number three, power. Look look at what the law says if you continue reading about aliens and, and immigrants and racial outsiders. When these kind of people came to the Israelites, the Israelites were to give them full rights as citizens. This is a way of saying don't just keep power for the elite, right? For people from one race or a culture, but bring them in as partners into your community. Every other culture at the time mistreated outsiders, distrusted them. They saw them as a threat to their nation. They would weaken them even militarily. But God says, no, remember that once upon a time, you were strangers. You were the alien. You were the racial outsider. How would you want to be treated? Use your power, whatever power you have, to treat them like that. Now, just three ways. Can you see? Imagine if we all lived like this. Use sex, money, power, everything to weave a community back together. The law wasn't just radical then. Man, it's radical now, right? It just is. It still challenges our hearts to serve one another, love one another in deeply convicting ways. But if we'll do this, what does God say will happen? We'll be not just a treasured possession, not even just a holy nation. He says we'll be a kingdom of priests. And what did priests do, right? They brought people into the presence of God. Think about it. What was a priest's job? It was to bring people into God's presence. And by saying this, God is saying, listen, I'm showing you all my cards. They're on the table. My ultimate heart for you is to be woven into a community by which my, into which my presence comes and by which the world can see who I am. Church, and if we'll do these things, if we'll forgive one another, love one another, not covet, not bear false witness against each other, which literally means not just not to lie, but not to speak untrue words against one another, which literally means don't talk about stuff you don't know. 
It means not to say something when you don't have all the facts. Imagine if we lived like that. Hmm? What would happen? We would show the world who Jesus is. Who Jesus is. We would be a place people came into, looked into, and saw, and knew God is among them. They would say, I I may not want to be one, but I sure would want my daughter to marry one. I may not want to be one. I'd love to hire one. I may not want to be one. I'd like, though, for the president of our nation to be one, perhaps. I'd like to have one for my neighbor, right? See, the law isn't just how we have a relationship with God. It's how we have a relationship with one another, which leads to this obvious conclusion. You can only fully love God in the context of being deeply involved in Christian covenant community. Being a Christian vulture, swooping down on the meeting to get some spiritual food and taking it back to your nest and your perch somewhere far, far away. That's not what this is about. How would you know? Let me ask you, how would you know you're obeying the law? You can only know it when you put your life up against someone else's, right? When, only when you have the opportunity to covet or lie or take something that doesn't belong to you from someone else. You can't obey the Ten Commandments fully, the law fully by yourself. It's only when you have others around you. In other words, you can only fully love God with others. Now, if you'll go to the law now like that and see that not only has God given you a way to ravish his heart, but detailed instructions on how to love one another. I mean, you can get up in the morning and read them and think, man, I can thrill my wife today. I mean, I can, how much you like to do that, right? I can thrill my husband, my neighbor. I can thrill the people in my community group. I mean, I can bring joy to their hearts and serve them. Reading this make, made me this week want to think about how I can love and serve you more in this context, in this life. Because this church, God's people, the covenant community, is the kind of people that God is shaping together to speak to the world. Everything we do here, in a sense, isn't for us. It isn't for us. It's so we can be a kingdom of priests and bring others to Him. Do you love to praise and worship here? I hope you would say yes. In a sense, it's not really for you. It's to form you into someone who can bring others to Jesus. Do you love the teaching here? Don't, don't say yes or no. Maybe, right? It's not for you. The point of it is to form you into someone who can bring others to Jesus. Do you love this and that? Do you love maybe even the new name of the church? Don't say it yet, all right? Maybe you do, maybe you don't. That's okay. That's okay. The name of the church isn't for us. It's for other people who aren't here yet. Listen, I've never even, if you don't like your name, this name, I never liked my name, just to be honest. I never liked Morgan. I always wanted something cool, you know, like Joe or Brody or Magnum or something, you know, rugged. I didn't pick it, though. I didn't pick it. My parents did. They gave it to me. Regardless of my name, your name. What's your name for? What are you for? What is Mosaic for? Not for us, for the world, right? For people who aren't even here yet. So let's do that, right? Let's be a holy nation together. Kingdom of priests together. In the end, whatever we are, it's for others. So finally, the law isn't just for us to ravish God's heart. is isn't just for us to serve one another's heart. Finally, it's also for us to understand our own hearts. Understand our own hearts. And here's what... 
I would imagine your heart has probably already done this morning. <clears throat> if you've got any kind of relationship with God, any kind of desire to want to be around Him, your heart has probably said what the nation of Israel, what the people of Israel said once they saw God's heart for them and for their nation. What did they say? Oh, they said the most wonderful and simultaneously stupid thing they could ever have said in chapter 20 when they said everything the lord has said we will do (laughs) they should have just gone with you know most of the commands we'll try to keep them some of the time (laughs) we'll do our best with some of those god Uh, we'll give it our best shot you know up in a line those lines well why didn't they why did they respond like this well for two reasons first that this is the natural response to being loved this is a natural response to unconditional love the human heart flourishes when it sees when it knows when it's felt loved they were saying this because they felt safe and secure in the embrace and care of god and you would have said the same thing too if you were there So number one, they responded like that because they understood God's heart. But number two, they responded like this because they really didn't understand their own heart. How difficult it was going to be to keep the law. Martin Luther pointed out many years ago that really you could boil the whole Old Testament down to just the Ten Commandments, down to ten simple statements. It's quite an editing job by God, I'd say. And really, he said, and he noticed, you could actually edit them down even not just from ten statements, but really to one. In other words, in the same way that the Ten Commandments speaks for the rest of the Old Testament, the first command speaks for the other nine. The first command speaks for the ten. And the rest of the Old Testament, which is what? You shall have no other gods before me. Now, let me just show you what that means and how it can help you understand your heart. And this works in any area. I'll just give you two. Now, I don't know about you, but I am the total target audience for day planners and calendars. <laughs> My calendar, maybe like yours, can get really full. Uh, when I was in college, I bought planners, I bought calendars like they were going out of business. Man, I had stacks of them, unused calendars, but I still had a hard time keeping everything straight. Then the Palm Pilot came out. Some of you may remember the Palm Pilot. I didn't, have to, I didn't just have to spend $10 on a calendar, right? When I could spend $100 on the thing that was going to cure my life. Then the, the, the iPhone came out. I didn't have to spend just $100 anymore for $600. I could now be cured of my disorganization and overscheduling. Except you and I both know it doesn't work like that, right? No. The problem with my or anyone's disorganized, unscale, overscheduled calendar is the same as the problem as anyone else's. The problem isn't that I have a calendar or not, right? Which may or may not help. The problem is I can't say no to other people. I can't say no to other folks. I've made an idol of human approval, right? And therefore, I can't say no. I've had another God before him. And therefore, I let you down. I haven't ravished God's heart first. Therefore, I can't tend to your heart, serve you well. What do I need to understand my own heart through the lens of the first commandment. Secondly, let me give you one more. Let's just say that you can't financially give to a church or ministry. Why not? You say, well, I don't know if, I, if I'm going to have enough, right? Maybe you start quoting back to the Bible and to God what the serpent quoted to Eve. Did God really say? And by the way, when you're quoting the serpent, when you're quoting, <laughs> say, it's just a bad place to begin in terms of understanding God's heart for giving. All right. Maybe you recognize you should give, but you don't. Why can't you? Not because you're physically incapable of writing a check, but because your heart's got a blockage, right? You've made an idol of money or maybe security, and by the way, or of greed. And the New Testament calls this explicitly idolatry. So you have another God 
before him because you haven't ravished God's heart. Now, oh, you can't serve one another's heart. All our ongoing hurt feelings, our bitterness records of keeping wrongs, misuse of our sexuality, substance abuse, you name it, comes down not just to not keeping the other nine, but not keeping the first. See, the people of Israel... They couldn't understand (coughs) how difficult it was going to be. They didn't grasp the depth of the impossibility of keeping God's laws and commandments perfectly. So they said, we'll keep it all. Got another ten, maybe we'll take those too. What does this show us? Oh, it shows us first that we were built for God. Our hearts were made to respond to unconditional love. And at the same time, it shows us how utterly inept we are at understanding ourselves and keeping God's law. It shows us how loved we are, how much more we're loved than we could ever imagine, and yet, and yet, more wicked than we could even comprehend. In other words, it shows us the gospel. It shows us the gospel, which looks actually like this. What happens next? Moses then took the blood, he sprinkled it on the people and said, this is the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. He said, God, bargain, what, what's going on here? Moses is sprinkling blood. God, that's so weird. No, listen, they didn't live in a, in, in a written culture like ours. They lived in an oral culture. If God would have come to them with pen and paper and said, sign the thing, they would have said, what? That's so weird. See, let's get out of our culture for a moment and understand what's happening here. This was an oral culture in which they acted out the terms of the covenant, acted out the terms of the agreement. And what they're saying here is, by doing this is saying this, may we become like the animal if we fail to keep the terms of a law. May our blood be shed. May we be torn apart. So what happens next after they do this? Well, we see the leaders of Israel are taken up the mountainside now to see God, right? After they make a covenant. They don't see him fully. They see something like his feet, something like a pavement. And whenever God is being described, his glory is just indescribable. Read Ezekiel 1. No human language can ever grasp it. That's why it's always so awkward. But, but they get near him, don't they? They go up, they get near him. And what do they do? It says they eat and they drink. See, in the Middle East, even today, eating and drinking together are holy and sacred signs of a union. What's happening? God is celebrating the wedding. There's a kind of a wedding feast here. They're being brought up into his presence for intimacy, you see. He's eating and drinking with them. And how, though, how could they get in and stay in? He says they didn't act, God didn't ask, act against them, no. They got in through the blood of a covenant, the blood of a sacrifice, And centuries later, we see God again invited another group of leaders to eat and drink with him. On the night he was betrayed, Jesus Christ held up the cup to a group of people who grew up hearing, studying, learning about the story in Exodus. And what did he say to them? This cup is a new what? Covenant in my blood, right? And a few hours later, Jesus Christ went to the cross and his blood was shed. Why? It was not just sprinkled. It was run out of him. Why? To make a new covenant with us. To bring us up and into God forever. He took the curse of the covenant. Uh, the penalty for our failure to keep the terms of it forever. He was cast out and cut off. That we could be brought in and receive the blessings of the law. Oh, and when you see this, and when you know this, you can use the law well. You can use it rightly. Why is the law given? What's it for? First, it shows us how to ravish God's heart. Second, it shows us how to serve one another's heart. And finally, it helps us understand 
our own hearts. We can never keep it, but we need someone who could. And God has given that to us in Jesus. And if you're here this morning and you've never had a moment, never had a moment, like maybe you heard Kimberly earlier, where you quit trying either to earn God's favor through covenant keeping or keeping him at a distance through law breaking, now can be your day. He's opened his heart to you, asking you to come on in. Let's pray this morning as we close. Lord, we thank you as we see your heart has been open for us today. Open to us today. We thank you that we can go all the way in because of Jesus, because of the blood of a new covenant, the cup poured out for us. Would you give us grace to respond now? If you're here this morning, you've never, in a sense, come all the way in. Never quit trying to earn God's love or never quit trying to keep him away for whatever reason. You say, today's my day. I see Jesus kept what I never could. He's good in my place. If that's you, you want to become a Christian, give your life to Jesus. Would you raise your hand this morning? I want to pray for you. morning what you've done for us well we just commit as a people to reading the law like this seeing how we can thrill your heart even that much more lord and if you loved us even before we could even keep a single law and yet now in jesus on our behalf the law is kept for us fully lord how much more can we be objects of your affection today how much more can we be objects of your love as you look at us as the ones who have fully kept your covenant through Jesus. And we're grateful for that. And out of that, we sing and celebrate this morning. We just say thank you in Jesus' name.